You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on February 10th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was planes, trains, and automobiles. Music was performed by the Spruce Tip Ramblers. All right, let's give it up one more time for the Spruce Tip Ramblers. Welcome to Mudrooms. Um, I am Steve Suing, member of the Storyboard. And tonight's theme I'm really excited about, planes, trains, and automobiles. No one has to think too hard about a story that would be applicable to tonight's theme. A brief one, I'm flying up from Seattle on Sunday. Captain says, yes, we're going to have some turbulence throughout the flight. We know it's coming. And sure enough, we had it. And we actually had three more. And the second one, he said, oh, we didn't really see this one coming, but we know it's going to be done soon. And I look at the woman next to me and said, well, if you didn't know it was coming, how do you know when it's going to end? And the third event um, is going on, and it's a little bit rougher. I think they call it rough chop in the business. And, um, you know, throughout this, it's going through. And the co-pilot, because the pilot had been talking to us the entire time, the co-pilot miskeys his mic and says, Jesus! <laughs> now, to top off the experience, we finally make it on the ground in Juneau. Everyone's grateful. Pretty rough landing. I mean, I've, I've had rougher in Juneau. We probably all have. Um, we get to the gate, and the captain says, thanks for flying with us, folks, and remember, Delta would have not gotten you here today. <laughs> so the PR machine is in full spin at Alaska Air. So, so I'd like to welcome, without further ado, for planes, trains, and automobiles, Amanda Compton and Alita Bus. Our format tonight is we have seven stories. They're going to be seven minutes each. At the five-minute mark, you'll hear a warning um, symbol. The doe call sounds like... All right. And at seven, you'll get the final uh, warning. (laughs) Um, Is everybody with it? One theme tonight, seven people, seven minutes. You can find us at mudrooms.org. We're going to be coming out with new themes in a couple of months. You can check it out. they fill up pretty fast, so I would definitely recommend getting on our website pretty soon if you want to sign up for season five. And um, we're going to go ahead and start. Our first speaker tonight is Katie Bosler. Katie doesn't mess around when celebrating her birthday. She's pulled the birthday card for things like getting her children to move rocks around the backyard in sideways rain or bringing her friends along on hard hikes in the Italian Alps, also known as Katie B's birthday boot camp. On a recent birthday weekend, Katie and her friend Beth took an only-in-Alaska road trip. They flew to Anchorage, rented a red sedan they named the Raspberry Roadster, drove along Turnigan Arm, and made the one-way tunnel to Whittier, where they arrived at the Alaska Marine Highway Ferry Terminal, destination Valdez. There is going to be a ferry story. Here's Katie. We've been waiting for you. Waiting for us. I look at my friend Beth. It's, it's the ladies at the Whittier Ferry Terminal. 
we take our tickets and we make our way to park our car in the loading area. And there's a chain link fence around it and a lock. It's only 30 minutes before the ferry is to depart. So back to the ladies at the ferry terminal. Oh, we'll unlock it. Drive in. We're in lane three. We look around. There's six lanes, white painted lines. There's no other vehicles. No cargo trucks. No snowbirds. And no weekend warriors. But we think, what the heck? You know, we, Beth is at the wheel, and uh, we roll the Raspberry Roadster, the sedan we rented in Anchorage, down to the hold of the ferry. And there's about four ferry workers there to help us park our one car. We park the car, and we huff up to the solarium, and we start just instinctively, you know, kind of making our campsite, grabbing plastic Adirondack chairs. And after a couple minutes, we look at each other, and we don't have to do this. We can just relax. It's early May. The sun is coming out. It's the start of my birthday weekend, our trip across Prince William Sound to Valdez for the first time for me. So we sit back in the Adirondack chairs and just bask in the sun, feeling kind of like grand dames on a steamship a hundred years ago. A couple hours later, the wind shivers through, and we're kind of hungry, so we decide to you know, head down to the galley, head down to the cafeteria. And I just love the, the older ferries, you know, that you have the chrome tabletops and the red leather seats, and it smells like overcooked green beans. And we, we head up to the non-existent chow line, and there's a guy standing there. He's wearing shiny, long basketball shorts and a tattered T-shirt, and his hair is kind of sticking out all directions in a fight with itself. Tattoos up and down his arms. And Beth looks at him and says, can, can we get some lunch? And he rubs his eyes and says, I don't know, I just woke up. We're getting this feeling like we just barged into this guy's house, but he works here. We chat him up later. His name's Derek. He works the ferry three months on, three months off. He's from Oregon. Really, he says, I'm just a glorified parking attendant. Derek confirms our suspicions. We are the only passengers on the ferry Aurora. How many people can this boat carry, we ask him. Oh, 250 and 34 cars. But, you know, as, how did this happen? Well, the fast ferry left this morning, but, you know, we have to make the trip. We got to go to the other side and pick up people and stuff. How many crew members are on this ship right now? Oh, 24. 24 to 2 ratio. We figure there's 12 people at our service for the five-hour trip across Prince William Sound. Then we remember, it's the Alaska Marine Highway, not the love boat. Now that's a reference uh, for you younger people to a cruise ship TV show. So we finish our lunch, we make our way to the bow, and uh, it's just a beautiful day. You have the blue sky reflecting the water, and there's like a a tugboat just sort of easing by, and we're admiring the, the gold bell, Aurora, 1976, when suddenly we hear from the bridge, I hear there's a birthday on board. 
look up. Beth is feigning surprise. And then an older gentleman appears. He has salt and pepper hair and kind of black rim glasses. He's wearing sweats, sticks out his hand. I'm Captain Bob. Would you like a birthday tour? Well, of course we would. So we head up to the bridge. Captain Bob sweeps open the doors with a sweep of his arm, says there's 12 compasses on this ship, all connected to one gyroscope. This ship can steer digitally by computer, but I prefer to steer it manually. Then he gives us a little demonstration. So he has his helmsman, right? And he's giving the directions. Left, three, right, two, midships. Then he kind of surprises us. Why don't you ladies come back in a couple hours for the full tour? Okay. So a couple hours later, we're picking at our overcooked salmon dinner, you know, kind of lonely there in the galley, when a very handsome young gentleman appears, kind of has that look of a TV newscaster, the chiseled face and the swept hair. Hi, Mike, Captain Bob's first mate. He's ready for you now. So Mike uh, escorts us back to the bridge, opens the doors, but this time, it has this look of a, of a movie set and this feel. You know, there's like a half a dozen crew members sort of buzzing about quietly, and they're monitoring their digital monitors or their digital maps or the digital depth indicator, and there's Captain Bob in the middle of it all, looking very dapper and a far cry from the casual sweats Friday of three hours ago. He's wearing his full uniform, crisp white shirt, with the gold and blue bars, and there he is, navigating, steering the ship manually. So he has his helmsman, and there he is, left, right, midships, and out the bank of the of windows in the fr uh, before us, we can see the blue water of Prince William Sound, the little ice biscuits, I guess you'd call them, remnants of the calved Columbia Glacier, kind of like biscuits on a blue baking sheet. It's just quite a scene. And Captain Bob looks to us and says, would one of you ladies like to give a go at steering the ship? Well, Beth jumps at the chance. I'm a little more hesitant. So there's Beth steering the ship at the directions of Captain Bob. And I head over to a side table. And I'm looking at one of those navigation maps under, a glass, um, under glass on a table. And I notice, wow, uh, we're, there's Bly Reef. And I uh, ask, you know, Mike confirms me, oh yeah, we're about seven miles uh, east of Bly Reef right now. And the irony of this situation is just staggering. I mean, here we are at the site of the worst environmental disaster in North American history, caused by a captain much less dapper than Captain Bob, and Beth is steering the ship. <laughs> also, the other thing that really struck me was you know what, we're using a lot of state gas and state money to get the two of us to my birthday party in Valdez. But you know what, I don't think that any of that really registered with Captain Bob. I got the idea that he was rolling towards retirement, and this was his chance to show some middle-aged ladies what a captain could do at the helm of a ship on my state subsidized birthday cruise.
Our next speaker tonight is James Marcus. Uh, James Marcus is a natural-born explorer and wayfinder. He just returned last week from a three-month trip around the world, where he spent two months on the island of Sumatra, a few weeks in Eastern Europe, and one night in Iceland. James was raised amidst the beaches, swamps, and general chaos of South Florida for the majority of his life, and thus is glad to have escaped and is proud to have called Juno his home for the past five years. A full-blown map addict and bookworm from the start, he was drawn to study geography and history while at university. He's applied that knowledge through varied professional pursuits, including community planning, computer mapping, environmental conservation, nonprofit management, and he's even worked as a pizza chef and once sold cut cone knives for a summer. He's currently working as a substitute teacher and has resumed his regular Thursday night radio show on KXLL, the James Radio Hour. Please welcome James. It's actually pretty hard for me to narrow down uh, the story, one story from my travels. And, you know, it took a lot of time for me to collect my thoughts. And, but I think I figured out one, one that I want to tell. And I'm not going to tell you the story about all the flights and the trains and the planes and the automobiles that I've missed or just barely made over the years. I'm not going to tell you the story of how I almost drove a scooter off a cliff in Sumatra two years ago. I'm not going to tell you the story of how, you know, I got decompression sickness after scuba diving down to a shipwreck at 180 feet. And I'm not going to tell you the story about the time my buddies and I got stranded in the middle of the Everglades, paddled over 40 miles in two days to make it home for Thanksgiving. And I won't tell you the story about how I got within three arms length of an, orangry, of an angry, semi-wild orangutan in Sumatra. Those stories are for another time and place. Now this story is uh, about the four most important lessons that I've learned in my travels. And, uh, and I hope it inspires you to pursue your adventures, whatever they may be. The first lesson is never try, never know. It's my favorite saying from my time in Indonesia, and it exemplifies my overall attitude towards life. Traveling really opens your mind and forces your perceptions to change. And the world is not so much of a scary place once you turn off your screen. Living under Sharia law in Eche province for two months really helped me gain a better understanding and res uh, gain a wholehearted respect for Islamic cultures. While seeing the first-hand effects of totalitarian regimes in Poland, Hungary, and in Cambodia, truly opened my eyes to the horrific depths of depravity that humans are capable of. Seeing and experiencing these places only reinforced my belief that people around the globe share more commonalities than differences, mostly desire to live a comfortable, peaceful existence. Number two, there's no better time than now. We all have our excuses for why we can't travel as much as we'd like. Our societal obligations, our jobs, the things we own, etc. But if you want to make it happen, you will. There's never been a cheaper time to travel the world 
We live in an amazing time in history that allows us to cross oceans in hours and to video chat with friends and family on the other side of the globe. For better or worse, the world we live in is changing so fast and right before our very eyes. Just in the last two years, two brand new airports sprung up in the cities of Madan and Kuala Lumpur to replace the crowded and aging infrastructure that I traveled through only two years ago. Unfortunately, there are landscapes, cultures, species, and entire ecosystems that may not survive the changes that lie ahead. See them while you can. Number three, traveling forges connections with our global society. Here in Juneau, it's easy to forget that the world outside exists beyond those mountains and clouds. We're so isolated here that a trip to Haines is an ordeal. A trip to Seattle feels like you need to go through customs. But it's a big wide world out there. And I think that traveling to foreign lands and engaging with different people and soaking in different cultures renews the human spirit. Whether befriending fellow travelers and road warriors or hanging out with locals and understanding how they live. I've made friends around the globe. I'll never forget being invited to a traditional Saman dance and learning about black magic in the Gaio Highlands of Sumatra, or tasting the underground craft brew scene in Krakow, Poland, and finding Juno's own Alaskan smoke border on the shelf. <laughs> Through our stories and experiences, traveling brings a slice of Juno to the world, and a slice of the world back to Juno. Number four, traveling really makes you appreciate Juno and how special of a place it actually is. I heard a saying a few years ago from someone. They said, well, Juno never looks prettier than when you're on a flight out or when you're coming back home after a long trip. And I cannot agree more, and I'm glad to be back here amongst familiar surroundings and friendly faces. And after traveling around the world and seeing some amazing landscapes, I was truly amazed last week as I flew in on a bluebird day how astoundingly beautiful our town is. And you truly recognize that when you've been away for a couple months. There's a reason why 1.2 million tourists visit our community each year. We truly live in one of the last wild places on earth, and we should do everything we possibly can to keep it that way. We should also consider how we can make our community more attractive to independent travelers. And after traveling for the last three months and being a tourist, I've gained a new respect for tourists and people who work in the tourism industry. That's given me a unique perspective on our summer season here. Those waddling cruise ship passengers on South Franklin, well, they're living out their Alaskan dreams just as we are here all year round. In summation, if you want to travel, it's simple. Save the money, take the time, buy the ticket, and go. You'll figure out the rest when you get there. And the final lesson that I learned in my travels, the next time I travel around the world, I'm not going to buy a return ticket. Our next speaker is Laura Kurt. When Laura first came to Juneau, her brother-in-law told a friend that he gave her six months before she fled back east. His friend replied, I give her six weeks. 
But it was her brother-in-law that moved away a couple of decades ago, and it's Laura who is still here. She continues to enjoy Juno and all it has to offer. She is currently single and tier one. What an opportunity. (laughs) Please help me welcome Laura. Seven years ago, I took a vacation with my daughter Brianna and her friend Callie that involved planes, trains, automobiles, boats, space cadets, the military, and what Callie still refers to as the most terrifying moment of her life. It wasn't too good for my daughter either. Things started to go wrong when I lost my daughter. We were touring Washington, D.C. at the time. And yes, I lost my daughter in the city where they elected a mayor to his fourth term after he got out of jail for crack cocaine. We were transferring from one subway to another. And as we're going down the escalator to the second platform, I make the mistake of saying, hurry girls, our train is here. Now you'd think my daughter, who the week before had been diagnosed with a stress fracture of her left leg and was in one of those medical boots, would have been the slowest of the three of us. But no, she wasn't. She reaches the subway just about two steps before us, and she leaps onto the subway car while the doors are closing. (laughs) She's on the inside, I'm on the outside, banging on the doors like a crazed mother, and there's these men in suits looking at us. And they look at me and shrug their shoulders. And my daughter looks at me and waves goodbye. such a comedian, and she disappears. Thank goodness there are cell phones. And she was in a tunnel, and the reception was bad, but I understood that one of the suits told her to get off the next station. And thank goodness a train came just a couple minutes after that one, and Kelly and I jumped on. Now, we get on this train, and I immediately assess the situation. There's one free seat at the back of the train. And I try and persuade Callie not to sit there but she's 15 and doesn't listen to me and goes and sits down and then figures out why I didn't want her to go there. The guy with the long blonde hair and the not-so-clean clothes was really, really high. I'm talking orbiting other planets without a ship high. She got a really big clue when the train's moving and swaying back and forth and he's standing there swaying back and forth and starts singing to everybody. Surfing on the train, cocaine. And he's getting into arguments with people. And anyway, she's trapped on the other side of him and can't get to me. And she looks at me with these really big eyes and this expression that says, save me. Finally, the guy moves just a little bit and there's an opening. So in order to get her to me without getting his attention, I say, Callie, come here. I want to show you this really interesting subway map. So she comes over, and I keep up the pretense, and I say, look, this is where we were, and here's where we're going. At which point the guy behind me says, excuse me, ma'am, you're on the wrong train. (laughs) So I get off the next station, and my cell phone rings, and it's my daughter. Mom, where are you? Well, honey, I'm at Arlington National Cemetery. Mom, there's nobody here. 
There's nobody in this station but one homeless, crazy person who's having an argument with somebody who isn't there. And they're both heading this way. <sighs> I find out later that Callie that night calls her parents and tells her parents this whole story. They, in turn, go to their church and tell the entire congregation of their church this story. Now, this congregation happens to know both girls. And they start thanking God and praising the Lord that it was my daughter I lost and not Callie. And I kind of agree with them. <laughs> but what I thank God for is the military. Because who shows up at the station but a man and a woman in fatigues, probably coming over from the Pentagon. And they walk over to my daughter and say what many adults would say in the same situation. They say, what are you doing here sitting there all alone? And she explains to them what happened. And they say, that's okay. We'll guard you until your mother shows up. And they do. They don't sit down and talk to her. They don't even face her. They stand with their backs to her, feet slightly apart, arms folded across their chest, and glare at everybody as they arrive at the station until I show up. So that's what I'm grateful for. The military who takes their promise to defend America seriously and defend Americans, including 15-year-olds who get lost in the subway. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on February 10th, 2015 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was planes, trains, and automobiles. Curious? Visit www.mudrooms.org. Our next speaker tonight is Jessie Helen Burton. She considers herself lucky to have two places she calls home, one in the Mid-Hudson Valley of New York, where she has the most complicated role of being the oldest girl in a six-kid family, and the other here in Juneau, where she has made for herself over the last almost seven years. You can find her singing badly, whipping up tasty treats deliciously, and chatting most lively as the newish owner of Pie in the Sky. So before I came to Juneau, I was most definitively a traveler. I moved every six to eight months or so, covered the U.S. and Western Europe pretty comprehensively. Most of my travels have been alone. I'm often prone to saying that the person who I've traveled the most with is my friend Gila, but it's not really true. It's actually her daughter, Ravenna. We spent the better portion of her summer before she started kindergarten traveling all over the Northeast as her mother who is an acupuncturist, midwife, herbalist, and does biofeedback, went to various conferences and symposiums and was a visiting practitioner in various places. 
Ravenna is, was a very petite little person. And so though she was five, she could easily pass for three, which was an extremely handy thing, because especially if I was carrying her when we were going in different places, nobody questioned it. Three generally gets in for free, whereas five plays nearly full fare. This extra money was extremely handy for us because it gave us the opportunity to do a lot of extra stuff. With the extra money, we went more places. We bought stickers in cool toy stores. We got face painting in zoos. And we went out for fancy lunches. I'm a big fan of fancy lunches. And I'm a big proponent of taking children into restaurants and hotels and places extremely fancier than most people would take five-year-old children. And we were one time dining al fresco on the streets of Montreal. Ravenna was in her little booster seat, and she had her milkshake, and our lunches had come. And I was sitting there. I was just kind of like, oh, life is lovely. We were going to meet up with her mom later in the day. And the server comes and says, oh, so how is everything? And Ravenna, not to be played with, says, um, excuse me, I think you forgot to bring my friend her beer, and she really likes beer with lunch, so if you could go and get that, that would be great. Thanks. <laughs> and this girl who was our server just kind of stood there and was like, oh, oh okay, I'll go get that. I am certain that she was not prepared to have this wee little child correct her on her, her forgetfulness and to be like, go get my friend her beer. We did a lot of cool stuff. We watched a baseball game laying on the glass floor of the CN Tower and frolicked continually. But as anyone who's ever traveled with a child of that age knows, it is not all fun and games. There are some big logistical nightmares, the biggest of which is the car seat. Because you got to like navigate their clothes and their little pinchy fleshy bits and the reality that the Fact is, most of the time, they don't actually want to be in their car seat, but they have to. And so after I had forced her into her car seat, sometimes she was obliging and sometimes she wasn't, then the next part of our like great contest with one another would begin, which was the radio. She had two children's CDs, which predominated most of our trip, one of which I hated, and the other of which I thoroughly enjoy and still share with the children of my life today, and in fact took her to a concert of... Her mom liked the one that I hated, and so often, if her mother had been the last person driving the car, I would have to go and do this like stealthy motion where I would like turn on the car, turn down the volume, take the CD out, and like try, without her to see, switch the CDs. But she usually busted me, which would then lead to a battle of wills where she would inform me that it was her car, and therefore, she should get to choose the music, and I would remind her that I was the driver, and without me, she wasn't going anywhere. I got to pick the music, and this would go on for probably too long until we would settle ultimately on either Carole King or the Beatles, which worked for me because I enjoy both Carole King and the Beatles. Ravenna is now 13 years old. She lives in Boston. We still talk regularly. Her mom and I are very good friends. And the last time I was home, we made a pact that the next time I go home, I fly into Boston so that she and I can get a little road trip action in on our way down to my parents' house in New York. I miss road tripping with my little homies. Um, 
Driving other people's children is a kind of serious thing. You have what is the most precious thing in the world to someone else in your care. It requires you to be a little bit more responsible, a little bit more conscientious, but it also gives you the opportunity to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Like when you see the big Swiss fluffy cows with the giant horns and you stop on the side of the road, even though you're afraid of cows, and Ravenna, this little itty bitty blonde hair, she's Syrian, Italian, and Jewish, but she has platinum blonde hair, ice blue eyes, and the whitest skin you've ever seen, who turns the color of mahogany. Go figure. But, and she just like reaches out her hands to the big cows, and the cow comes and I like grab her, and I'm like, don't eat my baby. But you know, I'm, I'm afraid of cows, so I probably would have never stopped and done that without her. But I have another wee homie here in Juneau named Fisher, who I travel with quite a bit. And we go to the bank and the post office and Costco and all the places I hate to go. And we also go see forklifts and big trucks. And this week, yeah, and he's a boy. So in restaurants, when male servers come up to me and talk to me, he crawls in my lap, kisses me, and like gives him the dead look, like, don't talk to her, I own her. And, uh, but this weekend, he and I are going to take his mom to the airport. His dad's going to be away traveling, and his mom's flying to China for two weeks. And I know this won't be the easiest trip I've ever made with someone else's child. I know there's going to be tears. But I also know there will be laughter, and there will be singing. Because, like he told somebody the other day when he was at my shop visiting me, that's my friend, Jesse. And... It makes my life a lot more fun to roll with my wee homies, even though this one's going to be a hard trip home. Our next speaker is Pat McClear. Pat is a librarian who has recently retired from working for the school district. She doesn't miss it. She thought about telling the story about traveling to Juneau from Seattle via ferry, where she reportedly entertained all the good folks on the deck with her rendition of the Carl Yastrzemski song, but she reconsidered. The reported solo performance was really just hearsay since she has no recall of singing Captain Carl's song to a bewildered audience on the solarium. So tonight she will tell of a few journeys that uh, predate that fuzzy ferry trip. Here's Pat. I'm leaving on a jet plane, don't know when I'll be back again. Okay, so really, I wasn't going on a jet plane. I had a train ticket, one way, Springfield, Massachusetts, to Denver. But that song was playing on the radio that Kentucky Derby Saturday when I left. My girlfriend and I were crying our goodbyes as Peter, Paul, and Mary sang that tune in the background. The summer before, during our nation's bicentennial, one of my traveling buddies, Howard, had worked at the Grand Canyon, and he came back. Two thumbs up. Great gig. Gotta do it. So my other traveling buddy, Mary, and I said, what the hell? Why not? So she secured employment out at Sequoia. I was hired at Yellowstone, and Howard was headed back to the Grand Canyon. Those two were driving their respective vehicles. I, however, was taking public transportation, Amtrak. But before I went on my westward adventure, I went shopping. 
I went to the East Coast version of REI, E-M-S, and I bought this very duffel bag. And in it, I put T-shirts, flannel shirts, sweatshirts, jeans, underwear, and TA, a gift from my parents when I was in the third grade on the way to the hospital to have my tonsils and adenoids removed. <laughs> the first part of the train trip was uneventful. I stared out the window. I read, I wrote, I ate, I slept, repeat. I avoided talking to people. Really, I was going to tell them I was having second thoughts about leaving my girlfriend, not so much. So here we are in Chicago. I have to change trains, got some time, stake some space out on a bench, and I decide to unzip the duffel. Because after all, T needed a change of scenery, some fresh air. And as I was checking the board, you know, click, 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 track change, time change, the kidnapping happened. Some small little thief right there in the middle of the day under the bright fluorescent lights of a major metropolitan city's transportation center toddled away with my bear. The audacity of that child. I chased her down. I repossessed my bear. <laughs> of course, then everybody thought I was the kidnapper. I put tea right back in that bag, zipped it up, and said, you're not seeing the light of day till we reach our destination. <laughs> in Denver, I bought a one-way bus ticket to Livingston, Wyoming, where a friend would claim me and then deliver me to Yellowstone. Got into that bus station late on a very cold and rainy night. I figure I'm going to loiter till the next morning. But the bus station manager had a different idea. He was shutting off the lights and locking the door. So he called the police to come pick up the vagrant. <laughs> Law enforcement took down all my vital information and then escorted me to the Salvation Army, where a very kind gentleman instructed me to go up the stairs and at the top knock on the door on the left where Gladys would give me entrance. Bag in hand, I climbed the stairs, and when I reached the top, I blessed myself. It's the best way I know of to tell my left from my right. <laughs> I quietly tap on the door. I quietly tap on the door, and Gladys unlocks. I go in, and she points to the bed that's tucked up under the eaves and then she crawls back in bed with her dreaming children. I start to take off my jeans. I have second thoughts. I pull up my jeans. I jump into the bed, and I refuse to cry. I will laugh about this someday. The next morning, as I'm descending the stairs, there's a table full of men who look up and greet me. They invite me to join them for donuts and coffee, but I politely decline because I have a friend who's waiting. But ever since then, in December, I always put money in the kettle in gratitude for a safe haven when I was far from home. I make it to Yellowstone, where I'm a prep cook. I chop, I clean. 
but I'm late for work on the very first day because there is a buffalo between the dorm and the back door to the kitchen. So, of course, all the veterans have to make fun, ridicule the East Coast rookie. Oh, that's just Charlie. He won't hurt you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a couple of days into it, Howard shows up. It seems as though the Grand Canyon didn't give him the raise he expected, so he drove off into the sunset, circled up north to Yellowstone, asked me if I wanted to go with him back east. What the hell, why not? So I fill the duffel bag with dirty T-shirts, flannel shirts, sweatshirts, jeans, underwear, tee, throw it in the back of his car, and we're off. Gratefully, he ignores the signs for wall drug. But we do stop at Crazy Woman Creek so I can have my photo taken. Somewhere in the middle, while H is shooting pool, I find a payphone call my mother. You're not where I think you should be are you? Poor woman. No, ma, I'm with Howard. We're in some state that starts with M. I'll be home in a couple of days. And I was. Howard got me back there in record time. But coincidentally, it was just as Mary was leaving to go to Sequoia. And she said, you want to go to California with me? I said, what the hell? Why not? So I did a load of wash, and then I filled the bag with T-shirts, flannel shirts, sweatshirts, jeans, underwear, but not tea. This time, the bear was riding shotgun between the two seats in the Chevy Vega. Westward ho. Our sixth speaker tonight is Roblin Davis. Roblin is a lifelong Alaskan born in Anchorage and a Junoite for about 16 years. He is an actor and a director working as a founding member of Strange Attractor Theater Company and is a teaching artist with the State Council on the Arts and Juno Arts and Humanities Council. He loves nature, art, his family, and struggles to remain an optimist despite his slow but evident demise into curmudgeonliness. <laughs> Goblin. Imagine if you will, or perhaps I should say imagine if you can, long, thick, flowing auburn hair with bronze and golden highlights down to my shoulder. A red bandana folded and tied around to keep all that magnificent down. <laughs> a homemade tie-dye t-shirt and earth tone paisley patterned shorts. <laughs> My first pair of Birkenstocks with ragwool socks. I was 19 years old and living in the environmental interest house at college. And about a dozen of us Nick, yippie granola vegetarians were heading down to the Nevada nuclear test site for three days of nonviolent protest. <laughs> we were going to drive three cars, and was, we were leaving uh, an early evening. It was about a 15-hour drive from Walla Walla to the middle of nowhere, Nevada. So we had planned to drive all night long. 
somewhere in the midst of the medley of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Cat Stevens, and Joan Baez, and Joni Mitchell punctuated with a little James Taylor, it was my turn to drive. So I took the wheel, and we were in the middle vehicle, which was my college sweetheart's old Mazda station wagon, I do believe. And I was keeping track of the time by watching the half moon kind of set behind the horizon as the glow in the east started to come about. And when we got somewhere near the border of Nevada, there was this huge desert valley that we descended down this straight two-lane highway and we were flying down with this beautiful, cold, brilliant night sky above us. I was so excited to be going to this uh, real-world experience to be able to, to take an active step uh, from just all of the, the studying and thinking that I had been doing about how to make the world a better place. But all of a sudden, as we were zooming down uh, this, this beautiful desert highway that just went straight across this huge valley, the brake lights in front flashed, and the car in front kind of swerved a little bit. And I kind of woke up, and it was one of those moments, those split-second decision moments where, okay, do I slam on the brakes? But there's a car right behind me. Do I try and swerve around this thing that I see emerging from the car in front of me? Or, and, and then potentially risk getting out of control? And then all of a sudden it's too late and I just floor it. And we feel this bump and hear this crunch as we kind of levitate over this lump that was in the middle of the road. And I look in the rearview mirror and I see this shape disappear under the car behind me. It seemed to do fine. No one stopped, so we just kept on driving. <laughs> was that a cow? <laughs> I think that was a frozen sleeping cow that we just drove over. But we keep going, and finally, mid-morning, we get there. We pull off the highway and to a sandy parking area, and there are hundreds and hundreds of peace-loving granola hippies from multi-generations and all vegetarians. <laughs> so the first thing we do when we get out of the car is we look under the car, and we see chunks of flesh and fur stuck to it. And we walk around the front of the car and we see how the license plate is bent under the fender with streaks of blood. But if you didn't look too closely, you'd never notice. So we went and we got our cup of miso soup to load our thyroids with iodine to protect us from any radiation, and then went to the communal vegetarian breakfast and went off to our nonviolent protest <laughs> meetings for that first day. But somewhere, and of course if you've ever been in the desert in the early spring, the night time when it's clear is beautiful but very, very cold. And then during the day, of course, it starts to heat up. And so somewhere after lunch, we head back to the car to get something. And we see the heat waves rising off of the hood, and then we're hit with a stench of 
baking, frying flesh and burning fur. And we're there in the midst of (laughs) hundreds of loving vegetarians with the stink of hell and the enemy emanating from our car. And for those three days, that vivid image of that mound of what at the time I thought was a sleeping cow, we figured out it was probably a frozen dead cow in the middle of the road. (sighs) And... I don't know what this great world is all about, and I have even less understanding of why this story came to me to share with you this evening. (laughs) But I think it was in the hopes to, to share and hope that I'm not alone. I'm not alone in having those dead, frozen cows in the middle of your road moments. Or maybe something a little bit like that. Thank you. (laughs) Our final speaker tonight is Tom Cosgrove. Tom lives in downtown Juneau next to the concrete banks of Gold Creek with his family and Martin, the rock star dog. He owns three vehicles, all with cracked windshields. Please help me welcome Tom to the stage. In November of 1990, Alaska voters approved an initiative that uh, made small, the possession of small amounts of marijuana a misdemeanor. It passed 55% to 45%. In the same election, in a three-way race for governor, Walter J. Hickel won with only 39% of the vote. This naturally led to bumper stickers that read, pot got more votes than Hickel. In the spring of the following year, a small controversy spun up around uh, Mr. Hickel's appointee to run the Department of Transportation. Commissioner Frank Turpin was sporting a bumper sticker on his official state vehicle that read, Let's Play Tags, which was a reference to the Trans-Alaska gas system in which the governor held a financial interest. The governor's office had asked Mr. Turpin to replace the bumper sticker with something more politically neutral, But weeks later, the bumper sticker was still in place. When a reporter asked him about it, he said the only way that he could get that bumper sticker off the car was to remove the entire bumper. (laughs) This level of political arrogance just cried out for action. And I figured the best way to solve a bumper sticker problem was with another bumper sticker. By April of 91, pot got more votes than Hickel was old news, and consequently, the bumper stickers were impossible to find. I asked around and found out that the local source of the bumper stickers was Hayden Caden, uh, one of our political activists. I didn't know Hayden, but I called him on the phone, and he was thrilled to help out. (laughs) He gave me a couple bumper stickers from his limited supply. Now, this is when I got cold feet. You see, I'd only been in the state about nine months and had only just recently snagged a full-time job at 
the Department of Transportation. <laughs> where I regularly ran into Frank Turpin. My siblings will tell you that I'm actually quite skilled at convincing other people to do my dirty work. But Chaz Dents, a friend and neighbor, needed no convincing. It was like he was just waiting for someone to ask. Now, every good political action requires good publicity, so I contacted independent reporter Bob Dukach. Now, Bob was someone that I had met soon after coming to Juneau, and I knew of his healthy disrespect for authority. Bob was all over this and insisted on joining Chaz so he could witness and record the entire thing. So in the wee hours of the morning, Chaz and Bob took off on foot towards the Park Shore condos. They were kind of going between trees and bushes as they searched for Turpin's car. They found it, and the tag's bumper sticker was still in place. So with Bob taking notes, Chaz put the bumper sticker on right below the license plate for maximum visibility. Now, I had wanted to let Turpin just drive around town until somebody noticed the bumper sticker, but Bob wanted photos for his story. So after Chaz went home, Bob returned for a stakeout. He was in his rambly old VW van, which served as his storage unit mobile office and crash pad. Turpin was known to be an early riser, and so after a few hours sleep, Bob got up and started to watch and wait. He didn't have to wait long until Turpin came out of his condo. As Frank approached his car, Bob stopped, introduced himself, and pointed out the bumper sticker. Bob got some great shots of uh, <laughs> Turpin standing there looking slack-jawed at the bumper sticker. And uh, you can see photos at the very back. I got a little poster board, so please take a look. <clears throat> However, Bob was unable to get a printable quote. Turpin took off down Egan Drive, followed by Bob in his van. Frank turned up the hill toward the Capitol and drove into the private parking lot. And by the time Bob found a parking spot for his van and located Turpin's car deep in the parking lot, both bumper stickers were gone. And no bumpers had to be removed. The Juno Empire refused to print Bob's story and picture. The editor thought it was a setup. <laughs> However, they did give Turpin a thumbs down on the, on the editorial page for being politically tone deaf. Our only public recognition came in the Anchorage Daily News and the political column, The Ear. Uh, I'd always assume Bob was the uh, anonymous source for that. Now, we didn't get the notoriety that we were seeking, but we did get the tags bumper sticker removed, and that was immensely satisfying. I tell this story now because Bob Dukach passed away this past summer. And although he was lauded as a tenacious reporter with a voluminous knowledge of Alaska's fisheries, I think it's also important to recount somebody's shenanigans, their escapades and lapses of good judgment. 
because these are the stories that let us glimpse who they really were. Bob remembered me in his will. And you know what he left me? A bumper sticker. <laughs> and his rambly old VW van. The will had been written in 1995, and although the bumper sticker was still around, the van had long ago gone to wherever rambly old VW vans go. But Bob also left something else to me in his will, a thank you for saving his life. And the thing is, I never knew I had saved his life. In the days of the bumper sticker caper, Bob was a raging alcoholic. And one day he really pissed me off. And in a righteous rage, I went out and sought out that rambly old VW van, and I verbally tore into him. I have no recollection what I said. But one of the things that I did was confront him on his drinking. And unbeknownst to me, Bob credited that moment with being the final push that he needed to get sober. And he remained sober for the rest of his life. So as great as it would have been to inherit the stakeout command center from the great bumper sticker caper, I think I've got something much more valuable, the knowledge that my words truly have made a difference. Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on February 10th, 2015. The theme for the evening was planes, trains, and automobiles. To tell your story or to find out when you can attend the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak with additional help from Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Katie Spielberger, Pat Roach, and Steve Suing. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night.